Good morning. I bring you greetings from uh, Grandview Church. This morning I went over there while they were getting organized. Pastor Steve Jones, the president of our fellowship, is preaching there today. And uh, I said, I'm on my way now to Heritage Grace. And they said, oh, that's the cool church. So you are the cool church. Uh, congratulations for earning that. It's a cool church. I was also told, I was warned, I was told uh, that there's a lot of kids here and that um, I should not expect things to be pin droppish. And uh, I, I heard someone say recently uh, about a church that had a lot of kids. She said, if you don't hear crying, it's because you're dying. So in a sense, it's good to have some wiggly commotion in the church. I think we'll get through fine. Uh, you got your Bibles, and you're going through the exciting book of Acts. It's an amazing book, as you know, because Aaron's been preaching through it. But it's a book about mission. Uh, maybe you've been watching television like I have, and uh, you have been excited about the mission to Mars of the perseverance. And you see these pictures of this uh, vehicle landing on Mars 127 million miles away. And when I watched this broadcast, I was uh, looking at mission control. And you got all these mission control nerds at their stations. And you hear the voice from mission control saying, and now the lunar, whatever it is, is on its way down talking. And when it comes down, everybody goes crazy. They start clapping and high-fiving. They're all excited because the mission so far has been successful. Luke is writing his gospel and the book of Acts because he wants you to think that you're in mission control. He wants you as members of this church to understand that there is a reason why God has called you together. And he wants you to see yourself in mission control, playing a role in the mission of Jesus Christ. Now, the perseverance module, or whatever you call that thing, its goal is to find life on Mars. Good luck with that. Our goal is to create life. To go where there is no life, where people are dead in trespasses and sin, and speak the words of life to them so that they become alive in Jesus Christ. And we're on that mission. This church exists to participate in the mission of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is two parts. In the book of Luke... Luke writes uh, to describe the first part of the mission of Christ, which was to die on the cross. Jesus came to die on the cross. The enemy of death has been defeated. That's mission number one. When Jesus says, it is finished, he said, part one of my mission is done. But then when Luke writes Acts, he's basically saying, this is part two. Uh, Jesus has died and gone to heaven, and now he is on part two of the mission, which is to proclaim the gospel and to build his church, and we're part of that. A good question that you would ask yourself, how does Acts help us on mission? What's the purpose of Acts? And one of the, 
One of the things I just want to say by way of introduction is, if nothing else, Acts is an inspiring account of the power of the gospel. It just stirs you up when you hear the wonderful things that God is doing in the world. Jesus said in John 14 to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes in me, the works that I do, and how many of you are impressed with the works that Jesus did? They're awesome. Blind people saw again without Toby's help. Uh, The lame walked. Dead people were raised again. And I'm very impressed with the works of Jesus. But Jesus said, the one who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works. And he's talking about heritage grace. How as we participate with the mission of Christ, there's a sense in which we are involved in a greater work than what Jesus did. And I think what it means is this. Jesus was unsuccessful. There was a part of his work, I mean, the cross was successful, but there was a big part of Jesus' work that was unsuccessful. People didn't listen to him. Ultimately, they rejected him. And his ministry was limited to a very small geographic area. But Jesus said, in part two, you're going to be involved in something greater. Uh, You will be involved in something that is global. And you will be bringing people with the power of the gospel out of their graves into life. And that is a greater thing than I was able to do when I was here. But I'm going to be able to do it through you. Something else about Acts. I believe that it's a, an instructional pattern for the mission of the gospel. When Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them. He didn't exactly tell us how that would look. But the book of Acts gives us a pattern. This is what Jesus meant when he said, make disciples. And Paul, who is the principal character in Acts, calls himself a wise master builder of the church. And so from Acts, we understand what the mission really looks like. And it's got everything to do with planting churches. When you look at Acts... As the apostles were faithfully obeying Christ, what did they do? They didn't start schools. They didn't start hospitals. They didn't do a lot of things. But what they did do was start churches. And when we say that we are on mission with Jesus Christ, there's a lot of good things that we can do. But the bullseye of mission for us has everything to do with what Paul did. And what did Paul do? He planted churches. He preached the gospel. He gathered people together. He taught them. He established elders. And then he got out of the way and did it over and over again. So there's a pattern in the book of Acts. But Acts is also a historical account of the progress of the gospel. It's history. In fact, in Romans chapter 15, Paul makes this odd statement. He's writing to the Romans and he's basically saying... I have nothing left to do here. And he's speaking about that region of the world, the the Middle East, if you will. And he's talking to the Romans and he said, I've got my work here is done. I've established beachheads of local churches that are now ready to reach out. And basically that's my job. And I want to go to Spain if you'll help me because I'm finished in this area. And within 300 years the Roman world had been claimed by Christianity. 
By the way, there's a sociologist slash historian by the name of Rodney Stark who examines the, the society and some of the social influences of the gospel in the first century. And he basically says that the world of the 21st century is very similar to the first century. And the social conditions that exist today existed back then, which were prime for the gospel. Listen to what he says. During the early centuries of Christian growth, a series of natural disasters, including earthquakes and epidemics, disrupted the Roman Empire. Christianity offered a much more satisfactory account of why these terrible times had fallen upon humanity, and it projected a hopeful, even enthusiastic portrait of the future. Furthermore, the massive numbers of those who died disrupted the normal social bonds that would have attached people to their families and neighbors. Because Christians were more likely to survive the plagues, pagans found new friendships with Christians whose faith would have been appealing in the midst of such turmoil. So he's saying when, when normal family relationships are disrupted and people are displaced, there's something very attractive about a church family where you can enter into that and experience what we were created to experience, community. And I wonder if the conditions right now in this world, with the global pandemic and all kinds of social unrest, if they are not ripe for the kind of success that the gospel had in the first century. People are hungry for the gospel. They don't know it, but they are. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. You know something about Corinth. Paul didn't go to the small towns. He went to the places where Satan was most active. Corinth was a major metropolitan city, very modern city, even by today's standards, I believe. And it was especially corrupt. There was in Corinth a temple cult that on a regular basis would employ 1,000 prostitutes who would fill the city. And it was said by the ancients that you needed a lot of money if you were going to visit Corinth for that reason. And so Paul is in Corinth, led by the Spirit of God, and it says he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now here's an interesting note, I don't know what to make of it, but there's a Roman historian who says that about the time of Claudius, there was a disruption among the Jewish people in Rome. And it had something to do with someone named Crestus. And there's dispute as to what is meant by that. A lot of people think that it, it's just a, a corruption of the word Christ. And the theory is that somehow the gospel had come to Rome and was working its way through the synagogues and the Jews were fighting over Jesus Christ and Claudius said, what the heck, get out of Rome, all of you. And Paul 
meets two of those people. And I think that is so cool because there was another time when an emperor spoke and as a result of his speaking, people were moved around and that's how Jesus was born in Bethlehem because of an emperor. And so now Paul's going to meet these people. Um, And he went to see them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. I just want to say something about this. It was very important for Jewish rabbis to work with their hands. Uh, They were all taught a trade, carpentry or something, tent making in Paul's case. Because they believed that there was something um, spiritual, something valuable about working with your hands so that you were never beholden to anybody. And there was a time when Paul had to make a big deal of this because there had entered into the Christian community people, so-called ministers, who felt that they could get a free ride in the gospel. And they could make money by being a big shot in the church. And Paul said it's very important that we establish a reputation in the world as not being freeloaders, but that we are people who know how to save, we know how to defer our pleasure, we know how to have something so that we can actually give and not take all the time. And so Paul was a a tent maker. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Now what I want to say for the next few minutes is... Some of the observations in this passage that I think are important for a church plant like Heritage Grace. I mean, if Acts is written to help us understand the practical aspects of being on mission with God, then I read it with a view to saying, what are the principles here that help us be on mission? And in verses 4 and 5, Paul says, it says, Luke says, Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. And Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. Paul was accompanied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And then earlier on in chapter 17, when Paul's in Thessalonica, he says, This Jesus I am preaching is the Christ. And I just want to say uh, with Aaron present. Where is Aaron? There he is. Aaron, your job is to preach Christ. If Paul is the example of the ultimate church leader, the ultimate church planter, over and over again, Paul says that the centerpiece of my, of my teaching and preaching ministry is Jesus Christ. In, Corinth, in 1 Corinthians one twenty, he says, we preach Christ and him crucified. And he acknowledges that for some people, that's kind of a stupid thing to do. It's inarticulate to base a movement around a crucified criminal. And Paul admits that there are a lot of people who are going to think that's foolish. And they're not going to come to Heritage Grace because that's what they hear. But Paul says it's the power of the gospel to everyone who believes. C.S. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, was a 19th century preaching sensation in London, 
he preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, a building that held 5,600 people. And he preached Christ. And on one occasion, he said to a complainer, he said, I am perhaps vulgar, but it is not intentional. Save that I must and I will make people listen. My firm conviction is that we have had enough polite preachers. I'm going to be vulgar if that's what it takes to preach Christ and him crucified. So Aaron, I hope and pray you'll be a vulgar preacher, preaching Christ and Christ crucified. But what that means is that, that everything that we believe is centered in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you think about the cross of Christ, it's like the, 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 uh, the axle of a wheel with all the spokes coming out. When you look at the cross, you get something about the holiness of God. Because on the cross, we see how holy God is, how he hates sin because the wages of sin was what we see on the cross. And so we get the holiness of God. The love of God is on the cross. The grace of God is on the cross. The lostness of man is taught from the cross. The power of God is taught from the cross. And so when Paul in Acts, he's preaching Christ. That includes the death of Christ. The teaching of Christ is also central. I won't talk a lot about that, but I do want to say this. There are some people who say that I just want to go to church to hear about Jesus. And I understand that. And Paul comes along, and I had a grandmother who said to me, now Bobby, if you're going to be in the ministry, you got to understand this. Paul doesn't count. You just got to preach Jesus. Don't listen to Paul. Paul had issues. Paul didn't like women. Paul was mean. But just love Jesus. And so she separated Paul from Jesus. And what we need to understand is that when Jesus says, teach them to obey everything whatsoever I've commanded, he gave those commands to the apostles. And so when we continue in the apostolic doctrine, it's whose doctrine? It's Christ's doctrine. On one occasion, Spurgeon was talking with someone who was criticizing a sermon. And uh, the person said, you know, your sermon is good exegetically. It's passionate. It's well done. It's eloquent. The person said, well, what's wrong with it then? And the person said, there's no Jesus in it. It doesn't matter where you are in the scriptures. Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All roads lead to Rome. All roads lead to Jesus Christ. And Paul in Acts chapter 18, and typically throughout his ministry, he was focused on Jesus the Christ. I also want you to note in this passage, and this is incidental, I realize this, but it says um, when... Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. What was he before? He was a tent maker 
doing as best he could while supporting himself. But when these guys came, a lot of people believe that they brought resources. They brought funds so that Paul could dedicate himself completely to his ministry, the Word of God. And I think that that is optimal. You want to build a church around the giftedness of God's people, especially gifts that have to do with the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Paul says, And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles. In other words, the teaching gifts are a priority for the church. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, he says, Eagerly desire the greater gifts. I kind of thought all gifts were equal, but they're not. The greater gifts have to do with taking the Word of God and explaining it in such a way so that the life that is in the Bible is born in the lives of the hearers. I believe that this church, which is well-established, is well on its way, You've got a pastor who loves the Word of God, but in some ways he's a little bit like the Apostle Paul, isn't he? Uh, he's a fireman, full-time fireman. He's tent-making, and then with the time that he has left, he's working on his sermons because this church needs good sermons. But as soon as it was possible for him to leave tent-making, he left it, and the church had the benefit of a full-time spiritual doctor. William Carey, the father of modern missions in 1792, left England to go to Calcutta where he would have a ministry of preaching the Word of God. And uh, he gathered around himself individuals who were part of his mission society. And he basically said, I'm going to go to Calcutta and I may never come back. And these people promised that they would partner with him and support him. Andrew Fuller was one of those men, and he later on described the occasion with this analogy. He said that the mission to India seemed like a few men who considered going into a deep, unexplored mine. It was as if Carey said, well, <clears throat> I will go down if you will hold the rope. And in a sense, that's what we do when we identify someone who is called to leave his work and go into a place where he will be under attack from the evil one. But, but he looks up and he sees men and women of God holding the ropes, praying and supporting. It's so important that this church, this busy church, do everything it can to ensure that this place will be a place of excellent Bible teaching. The Puritans, who were a group of English ministers in the 16th and 17th century, they were reformers. They didn't think that England had gone far enough in the Reformation, so they were Puritans. They wanted to purify the Reformation. And they said this about preaching. Good preaching 
was the primary means of God's grace to man. It was the highlight of public worship. Through the preaching, the Holy Spirit would apply the word in power to save people from their sins. It is primarily through the preaching of the word that believers are built up in their faith, especially in our knowledge-exploding world. God still uses the foolishness of preaching to accomplish the salvation of man. And I just want to encourage you to believe that, uh, to do everything that you can uh, to provide a way for Aaron to be well-resourced with time and good books so that when he stands here and preaches to you, it's God's word faithfully delivered. You may say, well, I've got an app on my phone. I can, get, I can find out anything I want. And I got this medical app on the phone. I can find out anything wrong with my body. If I've got a headache, I don't need to go to a doctor. I just do this thing and I find out amazing things about my condition. And sometimes I think, who needs a doctor? Who needs a pastor? I can go all over the world and hear from some of the most well-studied men and women. But here's the thing. The phone, my, my app doesn't phone me up like my doctor did last week. She phoned me. My doctor phoned me. Whoever heard of that? He says, how are you doing, Bob? Are you taking your pills? What's your blood pressure? Are you my mother? I'm your doctor. I can find out anything in all over the world. Yeah, but none of those apps, none of those researchers are going to bug you like I am. You know you're supposed to take your, your blood pressure. You got this situation going, and, and she put the fear of God into me. And, you know, that's what a pastor does. You can say, well, I can find out information anywhere, but, but your pastor's the one who's going to say, Have you, are you taking your pills? Are you reading the Scripture? I haven't seen you in church for a while. Is there a problem? And you want someone who is fully dedicated to that task as soon as possible. Let's read on. So Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. Paul then was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own hands. I am innocent from now on. I'll go to the Gentiles. I said, what, what kind of person is Paul that he bears this burden? He says, until I faithfully discharge my responsibility, I live with this sense of guilt. I have this burden on me. And I, I don't want to make people uncomfortable. And I don't know always how to read Paul. It's not his fault if people die and go to hell. But he was so overcome with his mission, partnering with Jesus, that he felt, if, if I don't do my job, it's a serious, serious offense. There's blood on my hands. And I think that a church that is on mission with Jesus Christ needs to wear that burden and to feel somehow responsible with Christ for the sharing of the gospel for lost souls. There's a great song that says burdens are lifted at Calvary, but you know there's a sense in which burdens are also given at Calvary. 
Because now we see with the eyes of Christ the incredible danger that people are in who are resisting Jesus Christ. We, our eyes have been opened up to a place called hell. And when we think about an eternity in separation from God, it bothers us. And it should bother us. Someone asked William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, he said, what is the best method that you have for training your evangelists? And he said, uh, do you think, uh, this person asked, do you think you have the best training program to teach people how to witness? Booth said this, no, I don't think my methods are the best methods. I think the best method of giving people a burden for lost souls would be to take them to the devil's hell and allow them to experience what it is to be lost in hell, separated from God for an eternity in the fire that could never be quenched. Then I believe men would truly have a burden and would know what it is to be soul winners because they would see what it is to be lost. And I think Paul understood that. And he, he lived with this burden, but he was faithful to his heavenly calling. And he was able to say, I've done my best. I'm free from the burden of sharing the gospel to you. Then verse 7. He left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door. To the synagogue, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, at least not here. For I have many in this city who are my people. And what I want to apply from this is that there are many people in Kitchener-Waterloo, I believe, that God is saying they're there, you need to get them. Um, you may not see them on the surface, but understand that the doctrine of election tells us that, that when we go faithfully with the, with the ministry of Christ, there are people that God knows, he's known them from eternity, and they are ordained for eternal life, and our job is to go and preach the gospel and watch how they come to Jesus. That's why Paul heard the Macedonian call, go to Europe, go to Europe, go to Macedonia, Paul, and he gets to Macedonia, and he finds that God has prepared someone's heart named Lydia for the gospel. And let me just say finally, because our time is up. In verses 19 to 22, we just go ahead in the passage here. It says, when they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. From Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, that was the church that sent him out, he departed and went 
from one place to the next through the region of Galatia, Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. I want to finish by saying this, that Paul, in his church planting strategy, maintained a high regard for his fellowship in the churches. Paul didn't plant churches that were so autonomous that they had nothing to do with each other. He want, in fact, on one occasion, he took up an offering for the mother church in Jerusalem, and the church plants took up money to help Grandview accomplish something. And that's not the case right now. Don't worry about it. But it's something like that. The churches that Paul planted came ultimately out of the Jerusalem church, and Paul was very interested in creating this dialogue, this sense of support and concern among the churches, so that the churches of Paul looked at themselves as being in a network. None of them were isolated. In fact, in 3 John chapter 9, verse 10, John writes to this church that was led by a pastor named Diotrephes, and... Uh, he says, this guy loves to be the first. He does not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us, not satisfied with that. He even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. And Paul hated that kind of thing. In his mission of planting churches, he wanted to plant churches where they pray for each other, just like you prayed for Grandview this morning, and Grandview prays for you. And we recognize that we are a fellowship of churches, and we are interested in the well-being of other churches. And God forbid that this church or Grandview would ever come to the place where we say, I don't need other churches. We don't need to be accountable. We're doing a great thing for God, and that's enough. Paul was very familiar with the other churches, and he would come in and out and have good fellowship with the churches. And so I just want to finish by saying that God has called you guys into mission control. You're on mission. You're planting churches. You're winning people to Jesus Christ. And there's going to come a day when we're in heaven and the new heaven and the new earth, when the mission will be complete, and there's going to be fist bumps, there's going to be hallelujahs. We're going to look at all the lost people that Jesus has swept into his kingdom, and then we will rest and celebrate the good things that God has done. I want to encourage you to continue to be faithful. God bless you. We are delighted as a Mother Church for everything that we hear, what's going on here. Let me just pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the ministry that you have called us to, for the spread of churches worldwide, and for the way people are coming to know Jesus Christ. And I pray a special blessing on Heritage Grace as they continue to man the mission and to continue the work that Jesus Christ has started to do. I pray a blessing and a power upon this church, upon Pastor Aaron and the elders. Set them apart, O oh Lord. Equip them to do an amazing thing in this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.